Take your Bibles and turn to, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we'll begin in verse 17. John chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 17. And I want to mention something before we get going, and I guess this would be uh, considered a, a, a warning uh, in some way. You know, when I'm writing a sermon, usually I have a few different books open or things available to me, but it's not usually a hymnal. And as we were singing the very first hymn, I noticed that I more or less quoted a hymn. And wasn't thinking about the hymn, wasn't really even, you know, um, that wasn't on my uh, agenda to do. Music is powerful. Um, what we place in our, our minds over and over again as we listen to music, it is powerful and it does work its way out into our lives. And not to say that, that I've listened to hymns all week, but I've heard a lot of them in my life. And somehow it kind of worked its way out without me even realizing that I'd done that. But um, other songs can do the very same thing in, in, in kind of different contexts. So just as a warning that's free, that has nothing to do with the sermon, um, careful what you listen to because it'll find its way into your sermons if you write those. Um, so we're going to be looking at um, the darkest day in history. And, and yes, it is. Um, it, it is kind of the pinnacle of the heaped up of all of mankind's sin. And, and then there are going to be those that actually take action on this day to show the darkness of the heart of mankind. But that's not really the focus. Um, language cannot express, neither can the mind fully, uh, the man of mind fully comprehend the meaning of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. History may record that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, but it does not say why. Yet it is only in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus that history can find its true meaning. Uh, for these events um, were the heart of God's redemptive purpose, the achievement of which the goal is the goal of history. So when we're looking at the cross, we are looking at everything that God worked toward. All the things to do with Israel, and even before that. So you look back to Moses and, and, and promises that were made to him. You step back further and you look at promises that were made to Noah. And even further and look to promises that were made to Adam and Eve. After the fall, God has been working towards all of these things. But at the same time, if you look at mankind, we have always been going toward a catastrophic event like this. Our sin cannot go unanswered. And so what is the answer for sin? Well, it is the wrath of God. That is the answer for sin. And in this moment, when we study the cross, we are looking at the wrath of God and the mercy of God. We are looking at His judgment and His grace at the same time. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind as we go forward. So I'll tell you some technical de details about the cross, about the crucifixion of Jesus, how he died, things like that. And, and it's important for us to know those details, but it's also important for us to keep the big picture in mind that everything that, 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 that history has ever led to was the cross. And you might say, well, it's all downhill from there, but really time doesn't necessarily have to be a line. I believe that everything has been going to that cross. Everything has been leading to that cross. The sin of mankind has been building up the necessity of that cross. The, the work of God, the righteousness of God, the scripture of God has been leading to that cross. And when we get to that point, we truly see the pinnacle of what is Christianity. So this is what matters. When we read the gospel, when we read the, the, the account of the crucifixion, everything to do with this, this is what God was doing always. And so... The sermon in a sentence, you might recognize this, but he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now that's from Isaiah 53, and it is but one of the many prophecies that we will see fulfilled in this passage today as we go through it. So I want to read you John chapter 19, uh, verse 17 through verse 42. It says, And he went out bearing his own cross to the place uh, called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw this uh, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all ha- was now finished, said to, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He, saw, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these, things who, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, 
came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified, or now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which had not, uh, which no one had been laid yet. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. All right, so we're going to kind of take this in a couple of little parts. And so the first thing we're going to look at is the crucifixion itself. Um, and, and so just to kind of help maybe fill in some of the gaps, because, you know, we have four accounts of this. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us about the crucifixion. They, some give us a little different details, and, 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 and some things that I'm about to tell you aren't necessarily from the details of the Gospels even, but just record of how crucifixions were carried out. One thing we know, in keeping with the custom um, that, that the Jews had, Jesus was forced to carry his own cross, at least the horizontal part of that cross, to the place of his crucifixion. We know um, that because of the physical ordeal that he had already been through, um, there came a point where he was unable to carry his cross, and so Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry that cross onto where Jesus would be crucified. Um, we cannot be sure of the location of Golgotha, which is, um, so it says here, they took him to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Um, so we can't be sure of the location of Golgotha, but wherever it is, um, that is where our Savior was crucified. Trying not to go on a rabbit trail, there are two very, um, very, I guess, different places that people have said. So there is uh, more or less the Catholic version of where Jesus possibly was cru crucified, and then there, there is the more Protestant version where people think that Jesus was crucified. The Catholic version, there's a church where he would have been crucified, and you go down into like the basement, and they've got the place where they think he was laid. In the Protestant version, um, the, the, the heel is there. You can still see the top of the heel and the two caves that form the eyes, but then there's a bus station there. They, they park buses about where his, his mouth or anything else like that would be. So there's that part of it. Now on the, um, and then the garden tomb is very nearby from there. Um, so without trying to get into that too much, there's, there's different opinions about where it is, but wherever it is, that's where Jesus was crucified. Um, Jesus was hung between two thieves because execution was a daily business for the Romans, and Jesus was on their list for that day. Um, likely, uh, Barabbas, remember we talked about him in the last, and he was probably one of the ones also that was part of um, that list. But then when they substituted Jesus for Barabbas, Literally, Jesus died in substitute of Barabbas. Some scholars even believe that it's possible that the two men that were crucified with Jesus were accomplices of Barabbas. That's a little bit of a stretch. There's not a whole lot of evidence there. But anyway, we look at it. Jesus was, was a substitute, not, even, not just in the, in, the, in the spiritual sense that we think about, but even in the very physical sense of he was a substitute for Barabbas on that particular day. Um, Crucifixion was perhaps the most painful method of execution ever devised. So some of this does come from gospel accounts, because some of the different ones and what they say, and some of it comes from just the way that the Romans practiced this. Um, so first, uh, we know that Jesus would have been stripped naked, and he would have been forced to lie on his back across that horizontal piece that he would have had to carry, at least for um, the time that, that he did. Um, in order to render him helpless so that he wouldn't be jerking around, they would pull his arms and his legs out of joint. 
um, pulling them out of joint so that he couldn't fight as they proceeded with the rest of this. Um, his arms w- would be stretched along the, uh, the, the cross piece uh, as he's laid on the ground. Um, and after his hands had been nailed to that cross piece, um, then they would have um, lifted him up uh, onto the, the, the vertical piece that would have already been placed in a hole in the ground. And so he is mounted there on that cross like that, and then they, he, his feet may have been on a small shelf about two feet off of the ground, um, or maybe not, um, but they crossed his legs and nailed through his legs into that, um, the, the, the vertical piece there to hold him up. Now, here's the thing. Um, there Jesus was left to, to die. Uh, most people, it took them days to die from crucifixion. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of different, I guess, science behind it and why, why these things would have been so horrible. Um, but you've got to think he's, he's, he's exposed to the elements. And so as the sun is, is bearing down on him, it's evaporating you know, all the fluids out of his body. Um, the, the, the stress that it puts on his muscles, the, the, the intense strain that he's going through, all of that would have just been you know, incredibly painful. Um, the way that people typically die from crucifixion, because they're stretched and their arms are elevated like above their shoulders, they can't really breathe. And so they had to push up in order to get a breath and they would go down. Eventually, through exhaustion, they were no longer able to push up. And so when they could not push up anymore, they slowly suffocated because they could not get enough air to actually support their own body. So that was the typical way. Um, and, and, and Jesus was left to hang there. In Jesus' case, he was only on the cross for about six hours. Um, according to the gospel accounts, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., Jesus was on the cross, um, and then he gave up his own spirit. And that is, that, is the, that is the important thing. All the gospels make it clear that Jesus himself surrendered his life, just as Jesus had previously said, no one takes my life from me, but I give it. And so that's an important thing for us to remember is that Jesus gave his own life. Now, Roman law indicated that above the head of every crucified or executed person, the legal charge against them had to be posted. And so that's what this sign is about. The sign that Pilate puts over Jesus' head, which says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews... That's not just a, a, a prod at the Jews, which it definitely was that, um, just to kind of make them angry finally or to, to kind of get back at them. Um, and it was a, that title was an affront to the Jews, um, but Pilate wouldn't change it because there were no other charges brought against Jesus. So according to Roman law, Jesus was legally the king of the Jews and executed as a rebel against Caesar. So according to Rome, Jesus was, had ascended to kingship over the Jews, and as a, rebe- as a, as a rebellious uh, person, he was executed. So that's just an interesting little snippet to let you know. Um, now, that's not necessarily what Pilate believed. Certainly not what the rest of the Jews believed, but it's an interesting footnote of history that he actually was executed as the king of the Jews. When, when Rome was an empire over that area, it would have been illegal for him to be a king of the Jews. Now, yes, Rome did appoint certain kings to be over certain regions, but that was Rome's business. Nobody could self-appoint. That made them a rebel um, by the very nature of being in, as part of an empire. So 
by Roman law, Jesus was legally king of the Jews and in rebellion against Caesar. So Jesus was not killed as a, com a common criminal. Um, he was rather a rebel king fighting back against the rulers of this world. And in that, we see, in, even in this sorrow, we see Jesus leaving us an example to fight against Satan and his powers in this world. So Jesus didn't die a typical criminal's death the way that, that, that maybe it, it seems like as you read the story, but he actually died at, at fighting against the, 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 the powers of the world. But what we see in this is that Jesus stood against the power that, that is prevalent in this world. You see, there are two powers. There are the powers of the world. That's, that's Satan, that's sin, that's evil, that's all the things that are going on. And then there's the power of God. And Jesus all the way to the very end, stood against the power of Satan and the power of what was going on in this world. That is an example for us to follow. We are to fight against the powers of this world. Now, there's a couple of very important battlefields there, and the first one is our very own lives. In our very own lives, we fight against the power of Satan. What does Satan want us to do? He wants us to stumble. He wants us to get confused. He wants us to doubt. He wants us to fear. He wants us to commit sin. And so the very first battlefield where we're going to be fighting, just like Jesus fought, was to avoid that sin. Not through legalism, but through faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to what he calls us to be and to do. The next major battlefield is here in the church. What we do in this church and the mission of this church as it reaches out, that is the next major battlefield. Remember, Jesus said that you are the church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against you. And so the imagery there is not that hell is coming for us, but that we are coming for hell. We are coming for the evil in this world, and we are proclaiming the gospel, and that is the power of salvation. So this is the next major battlefield. We should consider the church as a place to be sent out, to be on mission, to be doing the things that God has called us to do, fighting against the evil and the darkness of this world. And the third place is just our position in this world. When we look at our position in this world, there are things not necessarily related to the church that we are able to do. God has strategically positioned us all over and there are things that we can do to resist and fight the devil in this place. Some people have a platform, they have a loud voice, not, not physically, but they have a way to let their voice be heard. They need to use it for the glory of God and for fighting against the powers of this world. Some people don't have a loud voice, but they have a tender heart and a compassionate way about them that's able to show one-on-one -on -one the love of Jesus Christ and to show the contrast between that and the darkness of this world, and they need to do that as well. Wherever God has us, we need to be working and fighting against the darkness. So let's look at some of those that were gathered by. So we've seen the crucifixion. We've seen what actually happened to Jesus, but let's look at those who were gathered by, those that were near the cross as Jesus was dying. Now, I'm not going to cover the interaction that Jesus had with the two thieves because John doesn't cover that, but you know a little bit about that story. We're going to look at the ones that John actually points out. So the scene of the soldiers gambling before the cross may be familiar, but we should not miss its significance. These men fulfilled a prophecy recorded by David a thousand years before that day. That's important. A thousand years before that day, David basically laid out the whole thing about people gambling for the clothes of Jesus Christ. Here's how it practically would have happened. There would have been four soldiers 
and then an officer, the centurion. So the soldiers, part of their pay, part of their um, uh, recompense for having to, to, to do this work, to execute a man, was that they got whatever the prisoner possessed, whatever the prisoner owned. So what this means is that Jesus had five articles of clothing. Um, so each prisoner would have got one article of his clothing that divided it among them. But then his inner cloak, the thing that was nearest to him, was woven without any form of a seam. And so instead of tearing that apart and ruining the whole garment, what they decided to do was cast lots, essentially throw dice to see who gets that, that garment. And that was the fulfillment of Scripture. Now what you need to understand is that this wasn't some mechanical um, process in which you know, God made it happen just so that it would fulfill Scripture. This is just the reality of human nature and the fact that God has always understood that. That everything has been building to this point and God has built in certain things that strengthen and bolster our faith as we go through. So, not only that, but they also cast a vision of lost men and women gambling before the cross. Think about this. Here's lost men gambling right in front of Jesus. There's this little bitty dispute about who gets this piece of clothing when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is there dying right before them. That's what we need to realize. Because in this world today, people are caught up and the smallest of pursuits, the most trivial things in the world before the cross. It happens in church. It happens in our personal lives. It happens at work. It happens in the public sphere. It happens everywhere. People get caught up in the tiniest of things, the oldest of things, the most meaningless of things when there is the cross. And it's just like they're sitting there gambling right in front of Jesus as he dies. The very same picture such as the human state, that we can focus on the smallest things rather than notice the grand work of God that is right in front of us. Right in front of us. How many times have maybe you been beside a friend that's not a believer and talked and spoke about trivial things? A family member, a co-worker. Those people might as well be casting lots right in front of the cross of Jesus. And we're gambling right along with them that we'll have another opportunity to talk to them later. That we'll have one more chance somewhere down the road. But we may not. We need to be sure and be clear that we are on mission for Jesus just as he was on mission for us. Now, we don't have a PowerPoint today. This was going to be on the screen because it's confusing even when I say it. Um, but we want to put together the other group that was there. Okay, so we have the group of, of, of soldiers, we have the, the four guards, and we have the centurion. But there was another group of onlookers, okay? And there are a lot of people, the gospel tells us, a lot of people walked by and it says they wagged their heads or wagged their tongues and spit and cussed and called him bad names. But people that were there for Jesus, okay? So by combining what we know from other gospels with John's account, it seems that there were four women watching the crucifixion of Jesus. Mary, that was his mother. Mary Magdalene. So you know about her. Salome, who was the mother of John and James, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, and also Mary, the mother of James the Lesser, and um, Jose or Joseph. So those are, the, those are the four women. Now, when you read it from John's account here, um, when it actually explains that these people are here, it says, but standing by the cross were his mother, that's Mary, and his mother's sister, it's not Mary, the wife of Clophus, which is also the, the mother of um, James the Lesser and Jose. So Mary's sister is Salome, 
who is the mother of James and John, sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. So that explains why maybe their mother approached Jesus and said, can my sons have places at your right hand and at your left hand if Jesus was literally first cousins with John? That would also explain why John was the beloved disciple, things like that. So it's just kind of interesting to see that and to see the closeness with which um, Jesus shared, not just with his disciples in, in, in more of a teaching sense, but also maybe even in a family relationship sort of sense, um, which would mean then that um, John would have also been related to John the Baptist. It's just very interesting to think about that. So these are the four women that were there, and then John and also the gospel mentions that uh, James was there as well. So we have these people that are gathered together with Jesus. So we have the soldiers. The soldiers are gambling over Jesus' clothes and watching and just, you know, waiting for him to die. Um, but we also have these four women who were faithful. We have the disciples that were there that were faithful watching with Jesus. So what were they doing? They were devoted followers who would have been um, the one good thing that Jesus saw as he looked down from the cross. Because remember... He sees these, these soldiers from other gospel accounts. We know that people came by to, 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 to you know, cast horrible words at him. But here, right here, Jesus actually gets to look down and see some people that love him, that are devoted to him. They don't know what in the world is going on or what they're going to do next, but they know that they are with Jesus even in death. So in an act of love, Jesus looks down on this crowd and he speaks to his mother and he speaks to John and he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And so from that point forward, John actually took Mary into his own household. And so what that meant, remember Mary was already a widow, most likely, um, and, and now one of her sons is dead. She did have other sons that could have maybe taken her in, but at that time, none of Jesus' brothers or sisters followed him that we know of. And so this was the way to put her in a household that followed Jesus and could actually provide and protect her. And so that was an act of love there. And at the same time, what you have is the two people that were probably closest to Jesus in the world were also now able to support one another as they went through the rest of this life without Jesus. So very, very, very beautiful scene right there in the middle of that. And what we, um, what we can see from this scene uh, should be in the small, seemingly powerless group of followers. Or, or what we can, we can see from this scene is that we should be in that small, seemingly powerless group of followers rather than the soldiers wielding the world's kind of strength. So you've got soldiers with all their power, and you've got these, the, these small, sad people that are just watching their Savior die. We want to be in that group. That's contrary to what the world would say. We don't want to be the losers. We don't want to be the ones where our hero dies, but, but we do because that is where God has placed us. That is where God placed the most important people and the people that were going to carry on the gospel to the next generation and so forth and so on down the line. And so we want to be there. We want to be following Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. We want to identify with him in his suffering, in, in all the things that he went through so that later we can identify with him also in his victory. So the cross really does divide the world. Uh, and we should always uh, ensure that we stand with Jesus, no matter how dangerous that might be. Was it dangerous for the disciples to be there showing support for Jesus? I, I would say so. Um, maybe that day the Jews wouldn't have taken action, but probably a, a mental list was, was happening, you know, of, of 
these were the ones that continued to support him. These others ran away, so we probably don't have to worry about them. But if these folks are bold enough to even be at the cross, then they're probably going to be problems for us later. I would imagine that somebody would have taken note of their presence besides just John. And so it's important to recognize that even when it's dangerous, even when we think that there might be a risk for standing for Jesus, we still must stand for him. Because if we do not stand for him, ultimately we stand against him. So let's look at the actual death. So while Jesus was on the cross, several prophecies were fulfilled, and John records Jesus' request uh, for drink preceding his death. Now, if, if you're a student of all the Gospels, you know that there was something offered to Jesus before he was actually crucified, and that would have been drugged wine. That wine would have numbed his senses and numbed his feelings so that he wouldn't have felt all the incredible pain that he was about to go through, and Jesus refused that because he wanted to approach what was next with all of his faculties completely in place. However... At the end, when he had been there for quite a long time, um, he would have been thirsty. This was, again, not a, um, a mechanical request just to kind of check off of the prophetic list of things that he needed to say and do before he could get out of here. This was, he was thirsty. He was truly thirsty because he had been there. He had been, you know, fighting for his life, so to speak, or not necessarily fighting for his life, but he had been going through the ordeal of his life, and so he was truly thirsty. Now, what they had to offer him was not very, you know, appealing in any way. Uh, it was this soured wine that was little better than vinegar, but when they offered it to him, it was enough for him to finish out his mission. So with a loud voice, Jesus cries out one word, Teta. Lestai, teta lestai, it stands finished. It's the literal translation of what Jesus said, it stands finished. And what that it means is that it is complete. Not, not that it's going to be finished or that, that, that it's already finished and over, but it stands complete. It still stands complete. So if, if I were to go home this week and say, you know what, I want to get some chickens and I want to build a chicken coop and I go home and I build a big chicken coop and I tell you all on Wednesday night, hey, I built this big chicken coop. I got a bunch of chickens there and I'm, it's real happy. But then I come back next Sunday and my chicken coop has fallen over because I'm not a good carpenter. Then what, what, it doesn't stand finished anymore, does it? It stands as a ruin. But Jesus's work never stands as a ruin. It always stands finished. It always stands complete. Now, in the original language of the New Testament, one word a lot of times can paint a whole lot of pictures for us. It can help us understand a whole lot of things. And so this one word gives us a whole lot of pictures. So one thing, Jesus declares that all the promises are finished. All of the promises stand fulfilled. Everything that he could fulfill on his first coming was finished and complete. Um, his suffering was over. This was the time before he, right before he gave up the ghost, gave up his life, and so his suffering was over. Sin's price had been paid, and none of his work could ever be undone. The very same word that Jesus used was actually the, the word that was used basically for an invoice. And so if I owed money and I paid that money, what I received back was called the very same thing that what Jesus said. It stands paid. It stands finished. It stands complete. And so this was like a, you know, a proof of purchase or something that was like it's done, it's finished, and it is complete. And so that's the beauty of what Jesus did here. And what he said is that it, it is over. The price has been paid. It is done. There is no no more left that he could have possibly done to save us. He has saved us, the Bible says, to the uttermost. So, having proclaimed the completion of his work, Jesus voluntarily laid down his life just as he said that he would. Now, the exact death 
the way that Jesus died, the physical manner of his death, that's going to be a mystery pretty much forever. Um, people have guesses, um, and many doctors have said that he might have died from congestive heart failure. It was a sudden death, congestive heart failure, which was likely brought along by pericardial effusion. Um, and what that is, is the sac around your heart fills too much with fluid. Your heart can't beat anymore, um, so it can't send the blood where it needs to go. And then it probably would have caused something like a rupture in his heart. Um, most of that is based on what, the, what actions the Romans took next. So Jesus was crucified on a Friday. And so at sundown on Friday, that's when the Sabbath started. And so the Jews, because this was a special Sabbath, it was the Sabbath following the Passover, the Jews wanted to get all of these ex executed men off the, the crosses and, and away. They didn't want that ugliness right around their city. Probably also they wanted to make absolutely certain Jesus was dead so they could close the book on that and be done. And so they went to Pilate and asked that the legs be broken. Now there was no Roman law or even a Jewish law about people hanging on the cross during the Sabbath. However, the Jews wanted to make it done. There was no law against it. And so Pilate sent the soldiers to break their legs. Remember I told you the way that they live for so long on the cross is they push up, they breathe, they let down. If you break their legs, they're not able to push up anymore. And so they die much more quickly. And so that was what the Jews were hoping would happen with Jesus and and these other two men. Um, but that wasn't necessary for Jesus. It did happen for the other two men. It wasn't necessary for Jesus. He had already voluntarily gave up his life. He was gone. And so what they did instead was they took the spear and they stabbed it into his ribs and all the way into his heart, puncturing both the sack that the heart sits in and the heart itself. And so when the, what came out of the wound was both water and blood, at least to John's eyes. Was it really water? Well, that's, it's a clear liquid. Um, but what he had there was the evidence that Jesus was truly dead. Some people say, well, you know, dead men don't bleed. So if blood came out of, out of his body when they poked him, then maybe that means that he wasn't dead. He, sure, he surely was dead. And that spear went into his heart. So if he hadn't been before, he would have been then. But what we know is that Jesus was absolutely dead. And John actually puts himself almost under oath when he says, he who witnesses it says that it's true. I saw it. It is true. I saw Jesus and I know that he was dead. There was a lot of things going around by that time that maybe Jesus wasn't dead when he was taken off the cross or that maybe Jesus wasn't even a real person. Well, Romans stabbed him in the heart with a spear. So that's as real as you get. And so that's the point that, Jesus, that John was making as he basically laid all of that out. So John witnessed this act. Um, and what we can see from this is that there was no shortcut for Jesus off of the cross. Remember at the very beginning when, when, when Jesus was going through all of this, he had, to, he had to decide what kind of Savior he was going to be. Well, he was going to be the Savior that God called him to be. There were no shortcuts then, and there was no shortcut here at the cross. Jesus went through all of it. He experienced all of it. And there is no shortcut for us. If we want to see the Father, we must go by way of the cross. There is no other way. Jesus gave everything so that the, word, the world might be saved, and we must give up the world to be saved. All those things that the world says is important, that's what we have to give away because Jesus died to save us from the world. Now, let's look at the burial, and this is very, very quick. We have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Uh, it seems as if they were friends and private followers of Jesus, and they chose to reveal their faith at the most dangerous time possible. 
Um, Joseph provided the place. It was a garden tomb very close to Golgotha, probably had been prepared for his family. Nicodemus provides the spices, the traditional burial spices um, that were probably bought for himself. Nicodemus probably wasn't a young man and he wanted to go out the way that he was supposed to, so he'd probably have bought those spices for himself and then used them on that day. It wasn't like he knew and it wasn't like he could just run down and buy them right away. So Nicodemus had those spices and they prepared the body for Jesus. Even though it was done in a rush, it was done with all the honor um, that, that Jesus, that, or that any honor person deserved. So it's fair to say that no one knew what was coming next. And so I'm sure Joseph and Nicodemus thought that they were laying Jesus in the place that he would lay. Even if they had heard what Jesus said, we see that the disciples didn't understand until they saw it. They didn't understand until it had been made plain to them. And until the Holy Spirit came down, nobody really understood what was going on. He was laid in a place of respect, and those who placed him there assumed that he would be there from then on. But we know that the grave could not hold Jesus, that he would be raised in three short days, and for that reason, we sing and rejoice. And so, as we finish this up, the passion of Jesus clearly demonstrates the cost of our sin, but also demonstrates the depth of the Father's love for us. When we look at the cross, yes, we see that there is pain and there is sorrow, and it is terrible that Jesus had to go through that, but it is also victorious. It is the way that God chose to deliver victory. So we serve a risen Savior, and He is with us even now. This is important. The troubles that we have in this world are real, but He has overcome the world and given us the victory. So that thing that He said for us a few weeks ago, in this world you'll have trouble, but fear not, for I've overcome the world, this is where He feels, fulfills that promise, where He overcomes the world. That is that moment when He does that. Remember His sacrifice and live a life worthy of the price that He paid for you. So what does that mean? That means that we don't get caught up in the minute and trivial things of the day. We serve Jesus. We focus on Jesus. We make our lives and our work and our mission about Jesus himself. For that's exactly what he did for us. And so there are so many things that, that we will be tempted to do. Good things. Decent things. Popular things. Evil things. We'll be tempted to do all kinds of things. But we only need to focus on Jesus and what he has commanded us and called us to do. Because He paid that great price for us, He deserves our whole lives in return. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You for showing us this Jesus on the cross. And I thank You for helping us understand that this was done for our salvation. And Lord, my prayer right now is that for each of us, that we look into our hearts and make certain that we have trusted in Jesus and no one else. The cross does divide us. If we have trusted in works, if we have trusted in family, if we have trusted in anything else to get us to heaven, it will fail. I pray that we all make certain that we are coming to you by way of the cross. Thank you for this time, and I pray that we make the most of each day, redeeming the days, as you have told us in the Word, because they are evil. But if we make them into good, by doing your work and proclaiming your words, then we have done what you have called us to do. Let us be worthy of the cross that we have just studied. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.